This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The state health department expects to get lab results from the water samples collected from the residential housing in the Red Hill, Pearl Harbor, Hickam area tomorrow. Military families began complaining of a mysterious chemical or fuel odor in the tap water this weekend. You know, there's been a flurry of statements released by the military, the health department, and the Honolulu Board of Water Supply. The ones that seem to want to talk are military spouses. Today, we talked to the mother of an infant. The family only just arrived on island about a year ago. She shared her frustrations and her fears. She asked that we not use her name because she is afraid of repercussions, but did want people to know what the families are going through. We did get a chance to go to a friend's last night, take a shower and uh, wash, you know, my baby's bottles. So it did feel nice. Um, to feel nice and clean again. I I don't know what's in the water. You know, they keep saying that it's safe. The last update we got was that there was no measurable quantities, but I, I don't feel like that's true. What are you hearing from uh, the Ohana communities, the management group that handles the residential area? Well, I called them yesterday, and they said that they can't say anything until MAVFAC does. Well, the health department tells us this morning that they hope to get the results from the mainland labs tomorrow. People just want to get to the bottom of this. It's just, a, it's a scary time. And I mean, people have been saying that they are getting rashes, they have headaches, upset stomach. And my dog, usually they drink lots of water. And for the past two days, three days now, well, I, I dumped the water out, but I just had the water there and they didn't want to drink it. And I couldn't tell why, and I was like, that's weird. You know, usually they're big water drinkers. Usually um, we have this big, I think it holds like a gallon or two, and we fill that whole thing up, and they didn't touch it at all. Yeah, and the dogs' noses, right? They have a keen sense of smell, so they -hmm. probably were trying to figure out something's, something's not right. A lot of people are upset. Everyone's very frustrated and concerned, you know, that we haven't gotten any updates. The nice thing Ohana did yesterday they said that they were going to start updating us uh every like like two times a day uh even if there is no update so at least you know we kind of feel like there is you know communication and that you know they're not just kind of out in the dark i mean i i feel like they're worried as well yesterday i called when i called as well the girl said that in their office it smelled like you know like the fuel as well but you know they they can't say anything Many families are just a little concerned about retaliation. Some folks don't want, you know, their full name used or their names used at all uh, just because they don't want to get in trouble with the command. They're they're told they can talk about anything, but when it comes to the military, you know, we're, we can't say anything. And, you know, people, their their life is on the line because, you know, I don't know for sure, but, you know, people could get you know, taken out of the military or their wages, you know, can get lowered or, I, you know, I, I don't really know all the specifics, but, you know, you're always told, you know, just don't, <laughs> you, you don't, you don't, you don't want to use your full name. You don't want people to know you're affiliated with the military. You just kind of say, you know, that you're against it, but like without a name at all. It, it was nice to, you know, finally read, do, you know, do not use the water because we just, we just want acknowledgement, you know, we, we, the water smells bad. Um, the email we got from the commander of the base yesterday said that they're drinking the water. They don't smell anything, but, you know, it, it's obvious. And they keep using the words several, you know, several households are affected. It's, it's hundreds of people, you know, it, it's not just a few people or, you know, two or three. So you think that should warrant um, more action? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's families, you know, like small, it, children, uh, pets, you know, it, it's just everyone is, is being affected by it right now. And it's, it's scary. <laughs> At least it is for me. I mean, maybe other people are just fine with it. But, you know, I, I can't just turn on the faucet and smell, you know, like diesel or some sort of gas in the water and be like, OK, yeah, that's fine. I'm just going to, you know, wash my baby's bottles wash her, you know, wash her clothes. I don't, I don't want to do that. I mean, maybe if it was just, uh, you know, like I didn't have a child, I would just say, okay, you know, whatever, I'll just get water, you know, eat out all the time. 
but you know i i have to worry about someone else who you know who doesn't have a voice and i guess that that i just want people to have a voice you know and i want them to know that that this is this is bad <laughs> you know it's scary you know i've never felt this way before where i felt like i just wanted to make sure there was action she said it's the mama bear in her coming out. You know, we did reach out to members of our congressional delegation and we're told high-level meetings are underway. The commander of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Sam Paparo, ordered an investigation into the water and fuel found in the Red Hill fire suppression system recently. Uh, HBR has learned that Congressman Ed Case and uh, Kaika Heli visited the facility the day after the November 20th leak. It's not clear if the Hawaii delegation will be issuing a a statement, uh, but we uh, heard from military moms this week that they feel that when it comes to their children's health, they want action now. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. In today's backyard, we revisit the year 1974 for a look at the changing landscape of Waikiki. Old hotels were raised to make way for the high-rises that would help define the Honolulu skyline today. But it wasn't always this way. Just two decades earlier, the Waikiki Biltmore was the tallest hotel in what was then the territory of Hawaii. A whopping 12 stories. But as time moved on, developers were eyeing the Biltmore's prime uh, beachfront real estate and seeing dollar signs of the many notable moments in the hotel's history. None was as memorable as its destruction. On May 28, 1974, the hotel became the first building in Hawaii to be imploded. Crowds of people gathered to watch as 300 pounds of TNT collapsed the structure. What was once a landmark of Waikiki was reduced to rubble in a matter of minutes. So for our quiz today, do you know what was built on the footprint of the Biltmore? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Governor David Ige hands over the reins to the counties for some COVID-19 procedures tomorrow. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth about how the Big Island plans to move forward. 69% of residents in Hawaii County have had at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccination rates are strong in Hilo and along the Kohala Coast down into North Kona. But zip codes on the southern half of the island trail behind. We've tried to have vaccination and testing in all the corners of the island. So I, I don't know if it's really access because, you know, for example, in Puna, there's been, you know, vaccination clinics and testing clinics. And I, I think they have been available and they continue to be available. I think it's, you know, just different thinking in some of those areas. Got my booster shot today. So, uh, so far, so good. Today, um, we went down. Uh, did not have an appointment and were, was able to walk right up to to the desk and uh, fill out our papers, 
walk right up, uh, turn in our papers without anybody in, in line, and then proceed directly to getting our shots. And uh, so it, it's it's definitely uh, available and out there for people. When I first got my shot, uh, I stood in line not that long, maybe 20 or 30 minutes, um, but there was hundreds of people when I first got my shot in in, uh, in March. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a different situation right now. Mm. It is kind of wonderful to be at a point in the pandemic where we have tools and they are easily accessible. Just before the holiday, there was this feeling of hope. You know, we're moving forward. Hawaii State is opening up. Governor Ige came in with this new emergency proclamation. And then I came in to work Monday morning, and the entire news cycle, it felt like, was about this newest variant that's on the horizon and is of concern. What are your concerns specifically for Hawaii County as the state opens up, but as we also head into a kind of denser time where people are closer together, people are traveling a lot? You know, I, I think the biggest concern with this new variant is we don't know what we don't know. Um, you know, we know that, for example, that in South Africa it's very uh, transmissible, transmittable, and uh, but we don't know if it's if it's more deadly than the other variants. We don't know if people are ending up in hospitals more than than the other variants. There, there's still a lot of things we don't know. We don't know if if the vaccinations are, are are going to help or not help. We hope that they help, and we, you know, from everything that we know, um, these vaccinations really weren't designed to prevent people from from getting uh, sick. They were designed to help people from getting really sick and and dying. And we know that the vaccinations have done that for, for example, Delta and the and the other variants. So right now, there's a lot of concern. Or what we don't know, but you know, we're we're pretty hopeful, knowing what we do know, that um, the vaccinations will do their jobs, even with uh, this new variant. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Every day of the calculus, it just becomes a little bit more complicated. I saw in conversation, I believe it was with West Hawaii today, that you said Hawaii County is planning on taking a measured approach to COVID-19 restrictions. Can you articulate for our listeners what that means specifically in terms of what milestones Hawaii County residents would be looking at to lift restrictions as well as what would be warning signs that would cause Hawaii County to take a step back? So, you know, we're in the process of changing our rules. And rather than, you know, taking all the restrictions off, we're going to start by taking, you know, some of those restrictions off. We're going to start allowing larger size gatherings, um, but we're still going to have, you know, numbers of how many people can can attend certain events, um, and then we'll, we'll allow larger events with, you know, certain permissions. And you know, we've been doing that the entire time. Um, there's a process that people have been going through with civil defense if they want to have more than the maximum number of people at a function. And what we've done with those is we've made sure that they had safety protocols. We're going to continue to, to have safety protocols for some of the larger events, but um, you know the numbers that we're going to allow will, will expand. Um, there's things that uh, we'll be taking, taking out that you know some of the restrictions that we've had. Uh, but we're, like I said, we're not going to get rid of all of the restrictions, uh, especially now with this, this new variant out there. Um, we want to be able to be nimble if we need to. Mm. I saw that Waimea is planning on hosting its Christmas parade after a brief pause in 2020. But it's it's not going back to exactly how it was. But we Correct. are. We are. And I, th- I think that's kind of the, the punchline of... A lot of the holiday season, it's we can't quite get back what we had, but we are starting to figure out what a new normal looks like. Right. Is there a specific milestone or a specific goal that you look forward to in terms of this pandemic 
both as mayor of Hawaii County, but also just as someone who has lived through the pandemic, something you would be able to do again that maybe you haven't done since 2019 or a new way of living that you look forward to? Well, I can tell you, having been mayor this year and going through this with friends and families, and I think in discussions you have with people, there's people who are vaccinated and who are not vaccinated. And it's very interesting for me how the debates on whether we should vaccinate have divided families, have divided uh, churches, have divided, um, you know, groups, um, teams. It, you know, it, it's interesting being a mayor going through that. I, sometimes, you know, I've, I've had friends who are on both sides and there's a lot of strong feelings. So that, that's been a kind of an interesting um, take. Um, going through this second year, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, an optimist uh, on everything. So I was hoping that, you know, we would be back to a normal Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, as we go into 2022, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic moving forward that, you know, we're going to we're going to get through this. OK, I mean, I, there's so many things I I had a heart attack earlier this year. So I, I'm 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 living a whole different life than, than I lived last year. And, and it's also, you know, I, I think uh, a higher quality life. But if we're talking about, you know, the pandemic and things that we we're looking at for milestones to open things up, you know, I think the big things will be when we stop seeing people dying. Um, when we have medications where we're, we're really able to treat people and, and we start seeing our numbers come down in our hospitals, you know, not having to, to deal with people being sick. I think those are some of the things that we're looking at because, you know, we, we're still vulnerable on our island by the, the limited amount of health care opportunities that we have. Now, Mayor, speaking of other things that have come under county's control, the state legislature passed a bill this summer that changed how we collect transient accommodation tax. Counties are now responsible for levying their own TAT. And when we spoke with you in August, you expressed concerns about this bill. Where do you stand now? I don't think I've changed my, my, my opinion. I, th- I, think I, I think I've actually feel a lot stronger about my reservations that I had earlier this year. I think Hawaii County especially is going to have a difficult time um, without lack of funding. That's about $19.5 million. And while we are able to tax our visitors another 3%, I don't think that we're going to make up that amount. They, the amount that they made that tax on was on uh, 2019 figures. And 2019 was one of our best years, I think our best year, as far as the amount of of, uh, visitors that we're having. Um, When you raise a tax, you do a couple of things. One, you make it more difficult for people to come, including our local families. And so I still think it's going to make it difficult for local families to to enjoy vacations. Um, The other thing that I have to say about this is, Unfortunately, we're going to need to, to raise that, that tax. And so um, we are looking at possibly even challenging under the new Supreme Court decision that tax. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're taking everything into consideration. That was Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth. He was speaking with the conversations of Anna Harriman Pote yesterday. And that bill currently working its way through the Hawaii County Council that would implement a 3% transient accommodation tax. Uh, is supposed to start January 1st.
Support for HPR comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to the community's health, providing vaccinations that help to protect against COVID-19. Learn more by calling Queen's Vaccination Line at 808-691-2222. When the pandemic began, Germany was a world leader in coronavirus testing and treatment. Now Germany's COVID infections are reaching record highs. That's largely because many Germans have refused vaccinations. Germany's government could soon make the jab mandatory, but observers say nothing short of a full lockdown will stop the new wave there. How Germany lost control of COVID, it's on the world beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art and its Artists of Hawaii Now exhibition, welcoming the community to a series of conversations, artists' talks, and hands-on workshops. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Silver Beach Reality Check today takes a hard look at the state's foster program. It's in light of the missing Waimanalo child, Isabella Ariel Kalua, who is presumed dead and whose uh, foster parents pled not guilty to charges of murder. Uh, reporter Kevin Dayton joins us with the story. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Catherine. You know, full disclosure, uh, because I know you and I know you have a personal experience as a foster family. I mean, you didn't interject yourself in the story that you wrote, but you do have you do come to the table with a different perspective, I think. I, I suppose so. Um, my wife and I have been foster parents in Hilo for a dozen years now, and we followed this story very closely, as I think everybody in the community did. And we're very touched by what, what happened um, or what seems to have happened and kind of alarmed at some of the things that we saw in the case, which is which is what today's story is about. Yeah. So, so talk about the story. I mean, uh, the 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 parents, uh, you know, pled not guilty uh, in court to those charges of the missing child. Correct. I, I guess the the story today kind of takes a look at at a, at a larger issue, which is how is it that the Kaluas um, ended up being licensed uh, to take care of Isabella Kalua in the first place. Um, as I think everybody knows by now, she was reported missing from her Waimanawa home on September 13th. Her body hasn't been found, but uh, her parents, adoptive parents, have both been charged. The, one of the most pressing questions about it has been how they could have been licensed given the criminal records of the two parents. And maybe we should recap that for, for folks that haven't been following this closely. Um, Sonny Kalua, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac Sonny Kalua um, had uh, four felony convictions going back to about 2000. Um, they were for violent crimes. Uh, one, of the, one of them was for terroristic threatening. Uh, one of them was for attempted assault, and two of them were for assault itself. Um, Lehua Kalua had an old uh, arrest for a drug crime. Uh, she went through drug treatment and was then, the case was then dismissed as the drug treatment program is sort of set up to do. Um, what's sort of startling about that is because given that background, if you know anything about the, the licensing process, particularly for general licensed foster parents, it's very difficult to imagine the state would license um, people with that background to, to do that work, which is basically taking care of children who are abused or neglected or at risk for abuse and neglect. It's very sensitive work, um, and, and it's just people, people undergo a lot of scrutiny before they're given a license. And the state rules, I mean, they allow uh, the welfare system to have some discretion, though, right, when they place a child. In, in a they family. certainly do. And when you actually sort of drill down and take a close look at those state rules, it's, it's a bit startling. Let me scroll down here. Um, the administrative rules, um, the federal government and the state uh, department both prohibit licensing anyone who's been convicted of, of certain specific crimes, including felony convictions for child abuse, neglect, spouse abuse, or a crime against children, or a crime involving violence, including rape, sexual assault, or homicide. All good so far. That certainly makes a lot of sense. What is a bit surprising for a lot of us is that an old felony assault, such as Isaac Kalua's, does not necessarily prevent someone from becoming a foster parent on the, under the existing rules. The rules say you can't be licensed if you have a felony assault or a drug conviction in the last five years. 
but the rules are silent about older convictions as, as applied in this particular case. Uh, and that gives the department discretion to decide whether to license someone such as Isaac Kalula um, or, or his wife. And uh, I know you've talked to a number of people, and, and there are some folks, some uh, former uh, foster uh, parents, who just think it was just a big mistake, uh, you know, not Absolutely. to look at those. I, I, think, I think some people who look at it, it's, I, I personally have, have known people who were rejected um, for licensing because of a DUI. Um, and you can't say too much about that. I mean, you know, these are, this is sensitive work, and, and it, people understand that they're going to undergo a good deal of scrutiny. But if you're going to reject somebody for a DUI, how do you not reject someone for uh, a record uh, comparable to the, to the Kalua family? One of the possible explanations is there's sort of two different ways of looking at, at licensing. One is general licensed foster parents who are, who are licensed to take in any child. Another is known as child-specific. Now, child-specific licensing is handled a little bit differently, and there's a little bit more flexibility there. Child-specific placements would be placements with a family member uh, or, or maybe someone who would be considered hanai, such as a, a neighbor or a close friend of the family. And the thinking there is those are good placements because it helps the kids to, to, to maintain bonds with the community or with their family, um, and, it, and it's just a more positive way to place children. And the department seems to be, in some circumstances, and nationally this is true as well, a little bit more flexible about allowing families like that to become licensed, even if there is, say, an old marijuana arrest or something like that. That isn't ideal, but it's, it's deemed to be acceptable if the, that family-specific element is there, because that's seen as being good for the kids. Right. And, you know, I think it's just heartbreaking in this case because the information that's coming out was they believe that Isabella was put in a dog cage and, and may have died there. But, uh, you know, it, it brings up a lot of emotions. And I, and I know in your story you mentioned that the, the CPS is even uh, there have been threats because of the yeah, the, the, the department is concerned because they say that there have been what they called credible threats, child welfare workers. And they're asking, calling on the community basically to let the department continue to do its work and respond to reports of child abuse and neglect. Hard to argue with that, but it is very frustrating to have something like this happen. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. For the past week, Hawaii transportation officials have been getting more guidance on the much ballyhooed infrastructure bill. This morning, we talked to State Highway's Deputy Director Ed Sniffen about what Hawaii could be in line for and what projects he thinks could be most impactful across the islands. For Hawaii, it equates out to about 20% increase in the funding we got from the FAST Act that used to fund us before. big thing about the bill, it uh, gives us another 20% of funding for federal highways. So whereas we had $185 million per year, to break down between the state and the counties from federal highways, we now get $224 million for those formula programs. On top of that, we get another $339 million over five years specifically for bridges. So all told, it's about a $100 million plus up from the previous legislation to now, which is significant. It allows us to move forward with repairing roads faster, uh, using better materials, repairing our bridges that are in poor condition faster, uh, and moving all of those that work up immediately. The program also allows for use of these federal funds for um, resilience on our system, for relocating roads um, near coastlines that are being impacted, for um, putting in charging stations throughout throughout the system to ensure that we can incentivize electrification faster. So big plus up on the system from this legislation that's coming through. You know, you talk about repairing our roads faster. I was on the Lique Lique the other day, and I was like, oh, gosh, you know, it's really starting to be rough again. We did the Kaneohe side of Lique Lique previously, and we had delayed that project because we were doing poly. So I didn't want to do two alternate or two alternate routes at the same time and impact the traffic in both, uh, in both of those routes. So we're finishing poly first, then we move to Lique Lique after. Okay, so there's some relief <laughs> soon. Absolutely. And that's the thing. So we could we could go out and just pave roads really quick. Um, I could go out and use our normal mix four we've been using for the last 20 years. I could mill off an inch and a half and put back an inch and a half everywhere. But in seven years, we'll have the same conversation again. Instead, we're taking a little bit longer to reconstruct the base structures that support the roadways. 
make sure that once they make a, um, an improvement in that area, it's going to last for 25 years. It costs more, it takes longer, but it's the right thing to do. Again, if we wanted to, we could make ourselves look good by just blowing everything out and, and painting everything black. But it's a temporary solution that's only going to give relief for short term. Okay, since you talk about repaving, I have to ask you, the repaving project, uh, Nimitz to Ala Moana, why are we doing that section by Ala Moana Shopping Center now during the holiday season? We've been moving that project forward for the past year and a half now. That portion of roadway has been in poor condition for the past four years. We've redesigned the pavement section to ensure that we can put something out there that takes the load from one of our busiest corridors and includes all of our harbors, all of the people who come from the airport to go to Waikiki, and all of our, our commuters that come in from, from the west side to town. It's a busy corridor that, that's a multimodal use. It's been in arrears for a while, and we could have waited for after the holiday season, but in reality, when we start looking at the funding that we're getting, implementation faster is always the best thing. So no matter where I touched on that route, it would impact in some way, shape, or form that Alamoana area. From my perspective, it's better to get it done now. We always play the balance between the impacts to businesses and the impacts to our roadway users. And in some cases, I gotta, I gotta make the decision for one side or the other. In this case, it's better for us to make sure we move this project forward very quickly to get this done. Oh, I don't think there's any dispute that Alamoana and Nimitz needs repaving. It was just the timing and where you start, you know, where you've got uh, the road dug up by the shopping center. I mean, why not start by Nimitz, you know, further by the airport? This, 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 uh, this is what worked out in the best of the contractor schedule to make sure that we could move this project forward very quickly. So we started looking at the reconstruction that's required. If you look at the system, I mean, if you look at the roadway itself, it's not equal. There's some portions of the roadway that can be just repaved. Um, because the base course is still uh, still in good condition. Other portions that need need to be reconstructed near the shopping center area, that's an area that we can just repave because the base is still strong, uh, still in good condition. So we started there. The other portions that require reconstruction is going to take a lot longer. You know, you do have the advantage of kind of the 10,000-foot uh, view. What project do you think might be the most impactful? I think the biggest thing for me in this bill is the money that's going coming in dedicated specifically to bridges. Every year we're trying to catch up with the condition of our bridges. A lot of our bridges are between the 65 to 100 year life already. And every year it costs us about 20 million per bridge to bring up from poor condition to good. When you look at the funding that we had in place previously, it's been about 40 million or so, 40, 45 million or so that was dedicated to bridges every year. That means about two bridges that we could take from poor condition to good, and another six or so that we could rehabilitate from fair to good. With an additional $67 million, now it helps us catch up on three to four bridges every year. And that those bridges, even though they're small portions of the system, there's about 1,100 on the system. Without a bridge in place, the connectivity of the system is gone. So to me, that's the biggest piece of the bill that, that we're getting in here. Big Island has four bridges that we need to fix immediately along the Hamakua coast. Um, but Maui has all the Hana Highway bridges, about 53 of them are still that are 80 to 100 years old. So um, they're going to get significant funding for those pieces. Kauai has four bridges that we just fixed, but there's two more that we need to address. And Oahu has a number of bridges on the North Shore that need to be addressed as well. So every one of the counties will benefit from this bill. We really appreciate Biden administration and our congressional delegation for pushing uh, to make sure that we get this additional funding into Hawaii. You worried about what could happen in the Senate? No, I'm not. I think um, infrastructure speaks for itself. There's big things that come with this bill. The additional funding that's coming in not only allows us to make the system more resilient through our bridge program, through the, the, con- the roadway condition programs that are already kind of in- enacted um, from fast and just kind of carried forward. All those things are necessary for the system. And that investment into that infrastructure is super important for the whole nation from an economic vitality perspective, from a connectivity and equity perspective, and also for Hawaii specifically, from a housing perspective. So the benefits I see outside of just the infrastructure piece or the condition piece that, that the bridge money brings, when we start looking at the additional funding that comes through, we can, we can really start looking at how we incentivize more affordable housing and more commercial centers in, in strategic areas throughout the state. Like where? So if we start looking at Kapolei, for instance, the, the big reason, well, let's look at Oahu. The big reason for traffic on Oahu is we have 75% of our jobs in the, the downtown the urban core in Honolulu. So the way land use was set up is we all live away from town and we all drive into it. So when we start looking at how we how we can reduce 
vehicle miles traveled per year, how we can reduce the congestion on the highways, and how we can make sure that we can improve the quality of life for our, our public. Looking at accelerating the growth in Kapolei is the best way to do it. If we can get that commercial center incentivized in Kapolei to make sure better jobs, more opportunities are included there, we can put more money into infrastructure through this bill to ensure that we can incentivize that. And you see it with a couple of interchange projects that we have put through. The fact that highway widening projects that we're putting through um, in front of UH, those types of projects that are multimodal that will allow more access and different, you know, from the community members that live in the area into the commercial centers attracts more business. And those more businesses out there, when we can start spreading out that commercial center into different areas, will help us alleviate some of the traffic. So hopefully the Leeward Coast residents have an opportunity to choose whether to drive into town every day or drive into Kapolei instead. So those, those investments are helping businesses choose to relocate to Kapolei. Um, Amazon is going to be coming in very soon. Other businesses are choosing to be out there. Um, and it's helping the, our developers to consider if the state puts in the infrastructure that's necessary. They can increase the number of affordable housing units they can put in into the development they have. There's been a lot of talk about development of a new stadium, entertainment center there uh, in the Halaba'ea area. Any particular highway issues, interchange issues, you know, if that density increases in that area? Definitely have to consider the, the transportation impacts. I think when um, these discussions occur about that entertainment district or the new stadium, Really, it's about activating land use. When our state agencies or government agencies are looking at activation in those areas, we got to look at what kind of connectivity issues it may or may not cause. Definitely considering that a majority or a number of other people will be using uh, transit to get into those locations, to and from those locations. But we also got to consider how they impact the, the interchanges that come through those areas. We're, we're working with, with DAG on a traffic impact assessment report to see what those impacts actually will be so we can start planning for it. Anything problematic? No, we haven't seen anything yet from them, but just, just considering the numbers of units that we're considering in the area, if there's not a high capture in transit, then there could be um, issues on the highways. So we're waiting for the report before I, before I make a determination on that one. Anything else then on the uh, Build Back Better bill? Some of the big things that the Build Back Better bill does, in, like I said, there's a 20% increase, and we really appreciate that. For us, all told, it comes out to about $40 million per year on the normal programs and about $67 million per year for bridges. Huge increase, but not generational changing. But the bill does allow us to potentially go to a generational changing funding increase because it in- includes another $20 billion in discretionary funds that we can compete for with the state and the counties as well to improve our systems, to make it more resilient, to look at relocating highways um, that are impacted by shoreline erosion today, and um, future sea level rise. So for us, we're looking at Honopilani Highway that we just recently got the raise grant for to relocate that piece outside of the inundation zone. We're looking at other highways along our system where we know the land use will require that our roadway be in that area in the future. Once you work through that, we'll see how we can fund it through the discretionary grants that are coming through. We want to maximize the availability of funding for, Ho- for Hawaii as much as possible. So we already reset our resources internally, made sure we had the contracts available, and made sure we work with the resource agencies here that work through the permitting for projects to ensure that we can show the need to federal highways and to USDOT, and also show that projects are available for us to start moving forward immediately. What do you think uh, the first project uh, might be? Well, Honopilani Highway is a go. Uh, we got $22 million in raise grants for that one. We have commitments from uh, Senator Schatz and Senator Hirono's office to push for um, some earmarks, if possible, um, through, the, through their budget. But that project, because we have funding for it, it's going to go. So that relocation is the first big push uh, for, for this funding. That was State Highway's Deputy Director Ed Sniffen talking about how the Department of Transportation is looking to streamline its processes to try and expedite projects that it expects to get funded under the Infrastructure Improvement and Jobs Act. today's Backyard Quiz, we took you back to May of 1974 when Waikiki's tallest building, the Biltmore Hotel, fell victim to the changing needs of visitors and Honolulu city planners. With an increase in tourism, developers pushed for new buildings with taller towers and more hotel rooms to fill the greater demand, which meant the 12-story Biltmore didn't make the cut. 
To bring it down, demolition experts set up 300 pounds of TNT to go off in a series of explosions inside the structure. It was the first building in Hawaii to be imploded. However, the landmark didn't go out without a fight. It took its time coming down, wavering for a whole minute and 37 seconds before tumbling to the ground. So what replaced this once grand hotel with a pair of 40 story towers and nearly 1,300 rooms? The Hyatt Regency Waikiki met the specs for higher inventory and is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And our winner today, Mark Rosen from Kaneohe, he tells us that he was actually there at the implosion in 1974. How cool is that? If you have a suggestion for a Backyard Quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. $800 billion in COVID relief funds still hasn't made it to the American people. In Pennsylvania, $2.5 billion of that aid is being moved to the state's rainy day fund. There is money being put away, but this is not austerity simply for austerity's sake. Tracking unspent pandemic relief funds, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Our next story is about a Hilo dealmaker who has raised $116 million and is looking to help take a private company public. Dustin Shindo is with Pono Capital, what some may refer to as a blank check company, looking for a match. He is credited with starting up Hoku Scientific, an environmental tech company that he sold more than a decade ago. Pono Capital was just listed on the stock exchange in August, and Shindo is on the prowl for a partner. If you go back to Hoku, I raised about, in different forms, about $500 million. Wow. We did about $2.5 billion in deals. So when I went back to starting my next company, I had to uh, stop myself from talking in millions. You know, I was going back and talking in thousands. <laughs> well, <laughs> you have managed to raise a good pot of money for this latest black check company. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so how does a boy from Hilo become this deal maker? Well, growing up in an entrepreneurial family with my family's business, I think that was the beginning of learning how to make a business work and learning what it takes, you know, hard work, effort, sacrifice. And then as we look to bigger opportunities like technology and such, it took some creativity and money to do it. And that's linking the entrepreneurism with the need for capital is what uh, birthed that, uh, that approach. So you must then get a real kick out of connecting people uh, and, and then watching you know, these startup companies or these companies that you uh, connect with grow? Absolutely. In fact, not just for my own company or my own endeavors, but uh, as you mentioned, connecting people, connecting people for other ventures, other ideas, nonprofit things as well. There's several things that I've helped sort of start, not from being on the inside, but just by connecting people. And so you are looking for a partner with this latest launch of Pono Capital. Yeah, so Pono Capital Corp as a special purpose acquisition company or, or SPAC is now looking with this $116 million, What we're looking for is a company that is operating but private. And what we'd like to do is merge with it and then help them become a public company and in the process add more value. And so, you know, you did do the deal with Hoku Scientific and you mentioned that you sold it to a Chinese company. What's the hope for uh, Pono Capital? So Pono Capital is looking for an operating company really anywhere besides China and Hong Kong. But we have a a very uh, keen interest on companies uh, based in Japan. And obviously, we do look at companies in the U.S. And our belief is that there are companies, technology companies in Japan, that are interested in being listed in the U.S., but for various reasons uh, have a tough time doing so. And, And we can essentially be the vehicle to help them accomplish that. Okay, because you're already set up and ready to go? Exactly. We're already listed, in fact. So when we merge, they automatically become public. It's a easier path for a Japanese company than a de novo or traditional IPO. And so the types of potential partners you're looking at, so it could be startups or just what something that a small company, a small business that just has growth potential? Yeah, so most often they're uh, technology companies because what we're looking for is 
a company that has disruptive power in the market, right? And because that would uh, create opportunities where they could grow quickly, as you point out. So um, usually they're technology companies and slightly earlier stage just because uh, we need them to be at a valuation that ties to us. You know, if they're a multi-billion dollar company already, they're either already public or uh, it's a disproportionate size to us. What is it about tech companies that grabs you? Well, I, I think underlying almost everything I do, not, not just the business side, it's making a difference. Right? As I get older, I want to make a difference in the world. And sometimes I can do that through the companies I start. And sometimes it's through volunteer efforts, helping friends, helping, uh, helping people. But with respect to business, I think if you want to help people, one of the ways you can do that, especially if you want to make big changes, is through technology. There's not too many other, I guess, call it industries where something small can have such a big impact on people. And you know, social media is an example of that. So I, I think in that way, uh, technology as, a, as an industry really fits what I'm trying to do as a person. As you survey the globe, there's lots of talk about climate issues and, you know, the innovation that's kind of growing around creating something impactful. How are you looking at at things like that? One of the premises, and this goes back, you know, over almost 20 years, of starting Hoku Scientific was because it was related to a a technology that would help the environment, hydrogen fuel cells. And so I think even back then, that mattered to me and to our team. I as you point out, it's probably more true today than it was even then. And with it has come, you know, obviously countless companies that are doing businesses that are not only uh, of high growth and potential, but also, you know, hopefully valuable to, to the environment. You know, I, I haven't uh, obviously participated in that market much in, in the past 10 plus years, but it certainly interests me uh, for the reason you're saying. You know, similarly, uh, healthcare and other things can have that same kind of impact, and, and those interest me too. And so what does this mean to have a, a Hawaii company create an, uh, an opportunity like this on Wall Street? Well, I, I think it, it shows a couple of things. You know, it's an example showing that you can do these types of businesses in Hawaii. It, it is the first back done from Hawaii and raising $116 million from Hawaii. You know, and, and in an odd way, obviously, there's so many things that are bad <laughs> from the pandemic, but it has enabled and brought down some of the, the walls on geography, right? I mean, in my, on my first IPO, we had to fly to all the investors, and it took weeks. You know, this time we were able to do all the investor meetings via Zoom. And I think that type of thing now shows that you can do that from Hawaii better than ever before. So that, that's, you know, one thing that's important. But I think it also goes to show that someone from Hawaii can take on something new like this and make it work. You know, I, I hope in both cases that it's a, a positive example that leads to other uh, big things from Hawaii. This pandemic really has, I don't know, I don't know, would you say that it's kind of leveled the playing field where you don't, you know, the the location is not a minus? Yes, uh, I, I think in, in terms of geographic distance for communication or building and starting a business, absolutely. I do think, obviously, there's other issues besides just geography, regulations, synergies with staff, or which, which may or may not be geographic uh, issues. But, you know, th- there are other things, taxes and such, that uh, we still have to address. But certainly in terms of being able to do business from anywhere, I think it has helped, helped tremendously. And so what is it about then growing up in Hilo and, and, and the family business that has stuck with you, you think? Well, I I mean, my earliest memories was uh, working with my father in our family business and just seeing how hard everyone worked. And I think, especially these days, when you work remote or you, you don't have all these people around you to keep the pace, you really have to be self-motivated in a way that uh, is, uh, I guess, different than it used to be. And I think that was one of the things when you have a family business, you know, no one's telling you you have to work nine to five. You're working, you know, almost constantly. So that, that is a, uh, probably a, a fundamental trait of, of being successful during the pandemic. And that was something that came from uh, growing up in Hilo. So what kind of time frame are you looking at as you, you try and uh, partner with somebody on this deal? So SPACs, uh, by their, uh, 
I guess, nature, I have a very limited amount of time to do a transaction, you know, usually one to two years. So, so for us, you know, we'd be looking at doing something in, in 2022. You've got a, a short fuse. A- absolutely, yes. And once, once that merger happens, then the business has no, no fuse, so to speak. But, mm-hmm. but a SPAC, by its nature, must, uh, must execute this, this merger within a very limited amount of time. And are there additional complications when you're dealing with, let's say, businesses from Japan? Yes, absolutely. So U.S. public companies generally use uh, U.S. GAAP for, uh, for accounting, and the rest of the world does not, sort of like the uh, metric, uh, metric versus imperial system, maybe. Uh. <laughs> and uh, so companies in Japan typically don't have that, uh, that same accounting uh, structure. So if, if you're working with them, you, you need to actually transition their books to be more U.S.-centric. And, and there is an international standard as well that's available called IFRS, but uh, our preference is to try to pull it more to the U.S. standard. Any nibbles out there? There's actually a lot of companies, not just in Japan, U.S. and, and others, that are, are very interested in going public. So I think as far as uh, all SPACs go, it, it isn't so much finding the, the one company that will talk to you. It's actually sorting through many opportunities to find the one that you want. That was Dustin Shindo of Pono Capital, which was just listed in August and is looking for a company with growth potential to invest in and to help take public. We're out of time now. Tomorrow we hear from Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami as the governor turns over COVID restrictions to the counties December 1st, which is tomorrow. Got feedback? Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.